As you turn to James chapter 5, we're continuing our walk through the book of James. Lord willing, we'll finish in a few weeks, right before Christmas. It's a book that's known for how down-to-earth and practical it is. We've covered a ton of issues already that can help us see the reality of Jesus on display in our lives. And the caution with the book are a passage that gets really into the nitty-gritty commands of Christianity. Do these good things, don't do these bad things. The caution for us is that we'll always just create a new religion of works. By trying harder to do what's right and trying harder to not do what's wrong. In other words, if you leave here today or any Sunday, the big takeaway for you is, I just need to do more and try harder. Then all we've done is infused you with more religion. It's up to you. You've got to make it happen. It's all on you. You just need to be better and do better. But the gospel is the opposite of that. The gospel is Jesus has done. Jesus has done. And we let our hearts and minds marinate on that, sit in that, rest in that. Jesus has done everything necessary for us to be reconciled back to the God who created us. And then for us to live the life that our Creator God has really created us to live every day. And even on our best days, we'll never do it perfectly. We'll never do enough to make us right with God. We'll never do enough to earn His love. It has to be given to us, and we have to receive it by faith. We can't work our way, we can't earn our way, we can't buy our way for this. We have to receive it by faith through grace, because it's a gift. And that makes us not only right with God, but He comes to live inside of us and makes us a new person, so that now, now we can obey the commands of a book like James. Never perfectly. But in a growing maturity, a growing love for Him, a growing desire for these things, the, the reality of Jesus begins to show up in His people more and more. And other people around us begin to say, hey, you are different. You're not like everybody else. You're, you're loving your enemies. You're, you're doing things like the book of James talks about. Going through trials with joy and endurance. You're asking God for wisdom when we don't have wisdom. We're not just going to Google to tell us what to do. We're walking in faith and confidence, not being immature and doubting the Word of God. We're people who are quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become anger, because we know that anger, the, the anger of humanity doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God, as we learned in chapter 1. We're getting rid of moral filth and evil. We're being doers of the word and not hearers only. We're controlling our tongues. We speak differently. We're taking care of the widow and the orphans. We're keeping ourselves unstained from the world. We're not showing favoritism to the rich, chapter 2. We're caring for the poor. We're showing the reality of our faith by our works. It's not just what we say that affirms that we have a, we'll walk with Jesus. You can look at how we live, what we do. We're living with wisdom from above by being peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy, demonstrating good fruits. We're blessing others with our tongues and not cursing them. We're unwavering without pretense, not quarrelsome. We're not a friend of the world, but we're humbly submitting to God, resisting the devil. We're not critical or judgmental, but we're trusting God for life every day and life a year from now because we're trusting that His will is perfect. That's all we want. All we want is His will. All we want is His life and reality to show up in us. 
So James is not explicit with the gospel like Paul is. It, it is sprinkled throughout the letter, like James 1.18, where he says, By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we could be a kind of first fruits of his creation. So it's not explicit, but it's sprinkled in there. It's enough for us to know if we're going to live this life that James describes, we have to have the help of Jesus. We cannot do it on our own. We will actually make things worse if we just do more and try harder. And I don't think there would be any argument about any of that being a genuine display of the reality of Jesus in our life. But the passage we're in today and the quality that we'll focus on over the next few weeks is one that we almost jokingly dismiss. We say things like, don't pray for this because God will answer it. You don't want that to happen. He'll make your life miserable until you learn it. It's a quality that's so anti-ethical to our culture that even we as Christians probably don't value it as much as we should. We'd rather just fix things, make things better. Or it literally seems so passive and weak, we don't think it's actually anything but feeble resignation. What is that quality? It is patience. Patience. So James chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Our dismissiveness of patience can be seen when we think of examples when we are most impatient. You know, videos buffering for 1.7 seconds on our phone. Come on. Just play. Slow drivers on the road. 30 seconds extra on the microwave. Just get hot. Do it. Slow waiters or waitresses for our food service. A package delayed by a whole day after traveling across the country in two days. A computer locking up for a few seconds longer than it should take, like this morning we proclaim. Internet service that goes out for four minutes. Power that goes out for a couple of hours and we immediately think we're going back 200 years and living like the, the pioneers did on the wagon trails. Cell service that's spotty for a few minutes and we can't get our fantasy draft, our fantasy team updates. Texting someone and they don't respond for like two minutes and we're, are you dead? Like if you're going to wait that long, we should have like an automatic out of office reply that you can't get to your messages right now. Going on and on, these things that spur up our impatience. And we, to various degrees, flip out with those enormous drags on our sovereignty. And we hear someone talk about patience, then we only think of those instances and our obvious impatience, and we kind of laugh it off. Like, oh, you're right, I need to be more patient. I need to stop flying off the handle with the slow driver, stuff like that. Yeah, I guess I need to ask God to help me with that. You never pray for patience because then you'll really have to suffer. Forgetting or overlooking that patience is in fact part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit that God intends to create in us. Love, joy, peace, patience. Qualities that will show up in us more and more over time because the Holy Spirit lives in us. If you are alive in Christ and Christ is alive in you over time, you will become you will become more and more patient. Some of you have walked with Jesus long enough, you can attest to this, like, yes, it's actually true. It's not because you get older, 
older people seeing more patience speaking for the older crowd? We're not. Okay? We don't just get more patient because we age and we move slower. That's not patience. That's just getting old. But more and more patient because the Holy Spirit is at work in you and is teaching you. So let's look at this passage to see how patience is elevated to the place it deserves and then ask God for his help in creating this quality more and more in us so we're not just tyrannical rage monsters flying over the handle at any perceived delay in our life, but, but so we will experience and enjoy and display the reality of Jesus and his patience in us. James begins with, with the word therefore, verse 7, which gives us the context of this command to be patient. If you look back, you see the opening six verses of James 5, which speak about the rich and their wealth. Coming out, verse 1, you rich people weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you have withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the wretches who does not resist you. Jesse walked us through this passage last week, a section more than likely addressed to non-believers and how they squander their wealth, they indulge in their wealth, and they use their wealth to oppress others, for which, James says, they will be judged. And then he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, now I'm talking to you, the church, you live in a world with wealthy people who are wicked, who will be judged. Very likely some in that church were employees being mistreated by their wealthy bosses. Or maybe even the poor being oppressed by the rich. Hence, this command for patience. He already mentioned in verse 4 that their cries have reached the ears of the Lord of armies and judgment's coming. So you fellow believers, brothers and sisters, are suffering at the hands of the wicked rich. Be patient until the Lord's coming. When that final judgment will take place, it doesn't always happen in this life. The economic systems of the first century were not easily changed. If you didn't like your boss who was treating you unfairly, you couldn't just go circulate your resume on social media. You couldn't just go door to door because there's a, a hundred different places that you could work. You didn't have months of stored, uh, income stored up where you could just quit your job and take some time to figure out, what is the job of my dreams? Maybe I'll become an influencer on social media, teaching other people about ancient cultures or movies. You lived in the first century in a world that was hand to mouth. When Jesus taught his followers how to pray, he said, give us this day our daily bread. They knew that reality. Every day, every week, every season was survival and total dependence on God to provide and so you might be stuck in a job with a horrible, wicked, wealthy boss, and that's all you would experience until you die, based on life expectancy in the first century, in your 40s or 50s. There was no way out. There was no other option. It's all that you would experience. And so this command to be patient with circumstances beyond your control is what we're focusing on. So next week, verse 9, we'll look at being patient with people. All right? But today, circumstances beyond your control, and, and there is some overlap, of course, but in this context, you're in a situation you can't change or fix. It's not good. It's not what you want. Specifically, suffering at the hands of the wicked or the unjust. And the advice of the Spirit of God speaking through James is this. 
Be patient. Don't rebel. Don't revolt. Don't take vengeance. Be patient. The Lord is coming. His coming is near. Now we might feel like this is worthless advice. We're Americans, by golly. We don't like something, we just fix it. Change it. We march the street, whatever we want to do. We, we're going to make the situation better for us. And how the world is reminding us that Jesus is supposed to come back when we've been waiting for this for 2,000 years, how is that supposed to help us be patient? Or be filled with hope? Or get through these hard circumstances? Well, in some ways, uh, it doesn't relate. So in terms of the job that you have, you hate, yeah, we do have more options today. And the Lord may indeed open a door for you to find a better job. We're not as confined to the, the workplace as they were in the first century. We have much, we're have much more mobile society, global society. Uh, you can now work at home. There's tons of jobs available where you don't have to leave your house. So seek him, seek his wisdom, process all of that through God's word and God's community so you can check your heart, check your motivations, that you're not just chasing money or chasing prestige or chasing ungodly ambition. You're not just trying to, to get to an unhealthy place. So, so that's why we do that in community with God's people. We come with the word of God, the, the spirit of God, the people of God, and we say, hey, uh, we're, we're thinking, I'm thinking about this, I'm praying through this. Help me discern my heart. Help me discern the opportunities that God has given me. Not, not seeking for our, our counsel, the counsel of God's community, to just rubber stamp what we've already decided, but help us work through this together so that we know we're chasing the right thing for the right reasons. We do that in community, trusting our brothers and sisters to help us discern our hearts, to discern the leading of the Spirit. And, and you also today can have side hustles to provide extra income. Uh, that's part of the struggle. And if our bosses are really unjust, we have places we can go to report that and actually see justice happen. And so we're not as stuck under the thumb of evil bosses as those in the first century, but we are stuck in other circumstances beyond our control that we can't change, can't get out of. It's run by people who might not be following Jesus, or we're just part of this big system in our world that we're all caught up in that we can't really change. And because we're not God... We're not ultimately sovereign. We're not nearly as powerful as we think we are. We're stuck. We want it to change. We want to fix it. We want to get out, but we can't. We just had elections this past week, right? This two-party system where ungodly amounts of money are spent to get red people or blue people elected, and it doesn't feel like it's making anything better. And people on both sides say that. What is this party doing? The only ones that seem to be benefiting are the people that get elected. And we're just kind of stuck as the normal people. And that's all we got. I mean, that's, that's all there is. Or it could be other examples, chronic pain or sickness, or people that we provide care for that we're going to be providing care for for a long time, or relationships with spouses or families that are just really, really hard. And we have to have them. We can't abandon them, or we shouldn't abandon them, but they're, they're just hard. We're about to spend holidays with people that we share DNA with. And we just, we just hope Certain issues aren't brought up. Certain topics aren't being discussed because of all the conflict. And, and other circumstances you can think of in your life that you, if something like a knot in your stomach when you think about it, like, oh, I wish I didn't have to deal with that. And in this circumstance, beyond control to change or fix or escape, the admonition of James is for patience because the Lord is coming. The Lord is near. Now some suggest 
that those in the first century really believed Jesus was coming back in their lifetime, and obviously they were wrong, and so we just should just dismiss the New Testament. Or, or they were mistaken, and we should dismiss the New Testament. Now, we know they did live with an expectancy that Jesus could have returned in their lifetime, because it was such a problem for, say, the church at Thessalonica that it had to be addressed by Paul when he said, if a man won't work, he can't eat. What he's saying is, these guys think Jesus is so close to returning, they quit their jobs and they're mooching off other people. And Paul says, you can't live like that. That's not how we wait for the return of Christ. So we know that's a wrong perspective. But then why does the New Testament use this language of the Lord's coming being near if it's been 2,000 years and we're still waiting? Well, the Lord's coming, first of all, in the New Testament, always is describing the visible return of Jesus to establish the eternal state. It's a global event in which every single person on earth will be fully aware of. We learn from places like Matthew's Gospel that no one, not even Jesus, knows when this will happen. So when you hear people start making predictions and giving years and timelines, you can immediately dismiss them. They don't know what they're talking about. There are no signs for this return. There are no hints that it's getting close, it's getting close. Jesus doesn't even know. It's very, very popular in America to point to certain signs as evidence that it's close. I've heard it a million times. We've been saying this for generations, and generations have come and gone and said the same things, and they're all wrong. And the hard times in our country that we point to as evidence have been experienced by brothers and sisters in Christ in other countries for much longer and to a much greater degree. So if we're going to point to hard times as evidence that it's getting close, our brothers and sisters around the world are saying like, uh, yeah, it's been a lot harder here for a lot longer. There are no warning signs of this return of Christ. It will be sudden and surprising. It will take the whole world off guard. It will happen with angels. It will be visible and unmistaken. No one will be wondering, what's going on? There will be no conspiracy theories about this. Everyone will know the king of the universe has returned to set things right. Everyone will know. It's the end of what we consider normal human history, and his return will usher in the final judgment of all mankind. And while we as his people should always be ready for his return, it can happen at any moment, it is not something we have to be afraid of or scared of. In fact... We should be excited about it and find great joy and comfort in this. Why? Well, in part, because our standing before God is secure in Jesus. We don't have to be afraid we're going to be left behind. Just that whole series of books is garbage. <laughs> or surprisingly be condemned to hell or eternal separation from Christ. But it's a lot. We could spend a lot of time on this. We've, we've preached on this topic at various times in the past. You can look it up on our website, but... First uh, Thessalonians 4 is one passage that helps us. First Thessalonians 4, uh, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who have, are asleep, those brothers and sisters who in Christ who have died. So when Paul says asleep, about believers, he's talking about Christians who have died. So that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. So he wants you to grieve with hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have already died. For we say this... To you by word from the Lord. In other words, Paul's like, the only way I know this is because God told me, because no one's known this until I'm telling it to you right now. 
We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with an archangel's voice, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who of us, uh, those, uh, then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught together with him in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So Paul is just basically saying, Christians, you're worried about believers who have already died. They're going to miss out on the return of Christ. They're going to miss out on the final resurrection. You're saying, no. What's going to happen is Jesus is going to return. Everyone's going to know it. Those who have already died are going to rise and meet him in the air. Are going to be instantly transformed. And then we who are alive are going to be caught up with them. We're all, this is the rapture. It's not secret. It's not hidden. It's very visible to the entire world. All of God's people rise to meet Jesus in the air, instantly transformed to our glorified eternal bodies, to, to be with Jesus and his people forever and ever and ever. So loved ones who have gone on before you, that you have laid in the ground, or who have suffered a tragic death and we don't even have their bodies, don't be afraid. They will rise too. Because Jesus is sovereign over life. And he will put them together into an eternal resurrected body and will ex experience life with Jesus and his people forever. And the final verse there says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Be comforted by this. Don't be afraid or scared. This is good. Death doesn't win. Death does not win. We lay the people that we love in the ground and it is not the final word. We're going to see them again. They're coming out. And we're going to spend eternity with them, being God's people in an eternal state. So be encouraged by this. Be comforted by this. And this is new information no one previously knew. So don't be afraid that Jesus is returning. You are his. You are secure. Look forward to this day. If there's something in like your soul right now where the Spirit of God is saying, Are you? Are you mine? Are you? Do you belong to Jesus? Then let today be the day of your salvation as you repent and trust in Jesus. Today you can know. Today you can have full assurance that you are His. And you don't have to fear this day, but you can long for this day because you're trusting and believing in Jesus. Looking forward to this day, waiting for His return. And this leads to patience in our hearts. Because the unjust, the difficult circumstances we are stuck in, it won't always be. It will end. And if we are actually experiencing injustice that's causing us to suffer, the wicked who are carrying it out, they will be held accountable. They will have to give an account as well and be judged. But, but what if we have to live the rest of our lives in these hard circumstances? I'm just supposed to be patient. It's the rest of my life. Is it the rest of your life? When you struggle with impatience over hard circumstances that never seem to end, you're living in despair or hopelessness or angst or anger. Aren't you living as though this life is all there is? This next 70, 80, or some of us, 20, 30, 40 years? This is just a blip to the number of years you're going to live. This is not even a blink of an eye or a whisper. Isn't that what we saw in the end of chapter 4 when James says, Your life is a vapor? It's a mist. In these cold mornings recently, our, our kids love it. They, I think they think they're smoking or something. But it's cold at night or cold in the morning. They're just, just watching their, their breath. That's the word James uses when he talks about our life. Our life is like that cold 
mist vapor that you see on a cold morning that is there and then is gone. That's our life. It's, it's amazing. That's all that we are, yet we can lay up treasure in heaven. That's all that we are, yet the plan for Jesus to make his fame known throughout the world is us. So it's this balance that we live, this tension that we live, that we really are just the vapor, but Jesus wants to love us and know us and use us to make his name known to others. I don't know what age you have to reach for this to become an absolute concrete thing. I've been there for a while. The, this life is an unstoppable, fast-moving train. You blink and a year goes by. You turn around and five years have gone by. You barely contemplate how fast life is moving and then a decade has gone by. Like, I'm going to be 50 in four years. That sounds old, except to me. <laughs> it doesn't sound old at all. It's like, of course I'm going to be 50 because I'm 46 right now. Jesse just turned 30. I vividly remember 30. Some people put pink flamingos in our yard. I think it was, a, I don't know why, I think it was a youth fundraiser. It was a sunny, cold, windy day in November, early November. <clears throat> Abigail was four, Grace was almost two. Jennifer took a day off and she did all kinds of special stuff for me. Can't remember everything, because I am old. <laughs> but it was yesterday. The rest of our kids were only plans in the mind of God. And I woke up and here we are. This life is a vapor and the Bible God himself is constantly from Genesis through Ecclesiastes and Matthew and James Revelation. He's calling us not to live as though this life is it. It's not. Live with eternity always in the forefront of your mind. Your life is speeding along and before you possibly know it, it's going to be over. Our Jesus will return, so be ready. Don't squander your time or your resources or your energy to make much of the now. Live to lay up treasure in heaven. Don't live just to indulge in the here and now. Use the here and now. Enjoy it. Yes, he gave us taste buds for a reason. He gave us eyes to see beauty for a reason. He gave us ears to hear beauty for a reason. Enjoy the now, but don't just let it terminate on the now. Use it to enjoy eternity. Use it to spread eternity. Use it to make the name of Jesus known so we'll enjoy all of that together forever. Don't live just for the now. Live for what will last forever. People and the transformation of souls. So patience in one sense is passive. It's being content to wait. It's resting in the greater truth and reality. It's the soon return of the Lord to make all things right and new and good. But patience is not inactivity. It's actively waiting. And he gives us the illustration of the farmer who has to sow and be prepared to harvest. Yes, for the farmer, especially in the first century, there's only so much they can do. You prepare the soil, you plant in the planting season, you wait for the early rains that in that culture came in October, the fall, and then you just wait for the winter, because their winters aren't cold like ours, and then you wait for the latter rains that come in the spring right before the harvest. And then they hope, they hope everything works out and they have a crop that can feed the people that they love. Get out the weeds. There's not a whole lot you can do. Now, of course, today we have fertilizers, insecticides, and pesticides, and irrigation controls, tractors with lasers and GPS systems that do their job perfectly. I talked to a farmer uh, several years ago that had drones that fly over thousands of acres, and they can tell the health of the crops from the size of the leaf, or the color of the leaf, or the density of the leaf, so they know where to send the water or where to send the, the pesticides. It's totally different today. But to some degree, farmers are still dependent on things outside of their control. Drought and disease can be so bad, farmers can do nothing. Even today. But they have a job to do, and then they have to wait. And it's waiting with faith that all they've done 
has been done, all they can do has been done, and the crop will come. It's an active waiting, active faith. Not passive as though we're resigned to whatever. I've done my job, now God has to work. Which is why James can end this section with verse 8. Strengthen your hearts. Strengthen your hearts. Because the Lord's coming is near. Very active. Be strong in your hearts. Be resolute, unmovable in your hearts. You're stuck in situations you can't get out of, you can't change, maybe even suffering injustice. You're getting the raw end of the deal. Don't rebel, don't revolt, but be patient. The Lord is at work. You can trust Him. The Lord is coming soon, and all things will be, be made new, right, and good. So let your hearts be strong. Let your faith and your trust in Him be strong. We can be patient and in despair or hopeless. Or we can be patient with hope and faith and this resolute assurance it's going to work out. What the Lord desires, what the Lord wants, what He decrees, His final state, His perfect will, will be done. And there's no complaint box in heaven. We're going to be fully satisfied and in full joy with what the, He ultimately accomplishes in our life. He is a good Father, a perfect Father you can trust. Even when life stinks, when life is dark, and when life is hard. How do we know we can trust Him? Because he has walked where we have walked. The same verb, strengthened, is used of Jesus in Luke 9, 51. When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. He determined, it's the same verb as strengthened. He was resolute. Jesus' ministry in the first half moved away from Jerusalem and, and all the Gospels. And at some point he turned to Jerusalem and began to move toward his final act of love and sacrifice to give his life for sinful humanity. Despite the fact that everything was against him, he was abandoned by all, even his father forsook him. He was in a circumstance he could not get out of. He even asked, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. And, and, and I believe the reason he asked that is so that we would all know there was no other way. It had to be this way. He had to go to the cross to redeem lost humanity, to redeem lost creation. There's no other way. He was determined. His heart was strong. He was patient, knowing God was at work in his life, in his death, and eventual resurrection, to accomplish redemption that would one day make all things fully and forever new and right and good. Jesus, in a circumstance at the hands of unjust sinners, Suffering in ways he never deserved to suffer, accomplished our greatest need, redemption, forgiveness from our Creator for the sins that we've committed. And all through it all, he was strong and resolute and determined. So in the same way, we move forward because he lives inside of us with patience, full of faith, not defeated in despair, but full of hope, with hearts that are strong and steady and secure, Waiting and doing what we can and trusting that God is at work, He will come again. In fact, we're not the only ones who have to be patient. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay His promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you. Not wanting any, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. This passage speaks to the return of the Lord and the problem 
that we have is that we are limited by human time, but God is not. Just like when your kids are young enough and you're on a road trip and 15 minutes in, a four-hour trip, they're asking how much longer. At a certain age, you can tell literally anything. They don't know. We have 12 more hours. We have 20 more hours. We have four more days. We have 10 more minutes. It's just numbers and words to them. They don't you tell them anything. They, don't, they and their immature minds don't understand mind like a mature time like a mature adult. In the same way, we don't understand time like an eternal God. Only He understands this timelessness in which He exists, in which He had to create time so we could have help. So we don't get time from the perspective of eternal God. The next thing to happen in salvation history is Jesus busting the sky open. That's what we're waiting on. Everything else has been done. That's all we're waiting on. But we wait. Why? Because God waits. And why does God wait? Because there's more time for you to come to repentance. Because he doesn't wish that any would perish. There's more time for the Wanchi and the Ache and the Baim and the Bone and the Tonga and the Tibetan Jonah and the Laws and the Zaza and the Mandor to come to the repentance. There's more time for your neighbors to come to repentance, your co-workers to come to repentance, the people who live in our city to come to repentance, the people lost in religion to come to repentance. He's waiting and he's patient so that you and I will come to repentance because he doesn't want any to perish. So for all of us, repent and believe and trust and enjoy Jesus again. He's in control. He's at work. We can be patient as he works. We don't have to rip control away from him. And and we just do our part, which is something, but it's not ultimate. And we trust him with what really matters, changing hearts and lives. If you're here and your life needs to be changed by Jesus from death to life, from darkness to light, from rebellion to worship, from being an enemy of God to being his dearly loved son and daughter, from loving sin to loving him, then today can be the day of your salvation. And if you're a believer already, rejoice in that. You are firm and secure. You can look forward to the day Jesus returns. Because you don't have to run away and hide in fear or shame. You're going to be part of his, his family forever. And then we can give our lives to make him known so that others can join in that. Jesus, thank you so much for all that you've done to make this possible. And it's not just wishful thinking or us hoping for things that seem impossible. It's strong and secure and steady because we're rooted in you. And all the promises of God have their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So because Jesus rose from the dead, it's all true. He died on the cross for our sins. He, he was buried and, and rose so that we could have life and joy and hope in Him. So let that reality and His soon return fill our hearts with hope and a patient spirit. We can be patient with circumstances that we can't change or get out of. Circumstances we can't control because ultimately you're sovereign and ultimately you're at work and you're coming again to make all things good right. So fill our hearts with this rest. Do that in the midst of us today. Do that for the glory of Christ, for joy in Him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we uh, get to do uh, each Sunday, uh, we now get to participate in a meal uh, that is...